Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus of an Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. This episode, we are continuing our seven-part series on games and mental health. We will be covering everything from what to do about gaming addiction to how we can design games to treat mental health conditions. I'll be talking with Kelly Dunlap. She has a unique background in both psychology and game design. She can see gaming from all angles, as a player, as a creator, and as someone who has studied the psychological effects. We will get into how all of these things overlap and inform her work. This episode is brought to you by Discord. Discord is an all-in-one voice and text chat platform designed for gamers, and it's free to use on your desktop, phone, or tablet. Use it to co-op with friends or to discover new communities of gamers to play with. Get started with Discord by checking out the Plus 7 Intelligence Discord server, the place to discuss how games impact people. Just go to discord.gg slash plus seven. Let's get to the interview. All right, I'm here with Kelly Dunlap. She is a doctorate in clinical psychology and a master's in game design from American University. And she's currently working at the nonprofit iThrive Games as a manager of mental health research and design. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kelly. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You did your dissertation on gaming habits. Is that correct? I did. I did. Uh, What I found was that People who played video games were not different on the personality scales, the, the big five. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So the big five personality traits. Gamers were no different than the norms of that measure. So basically gamers were completely normal, except on the measure for openness to new experiences. Gamers were actually scoring higher than the norm. So Hmm. across the spectrum, they were completely normal, average people, except that they were more willing to try new things, which when you think about it, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Gamers play new games all the time. You have to adapt to new systems, new rules, new mechanics. So you you really do have to be open to that kind of new experience to enjoy playing a multitude of games. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing. The second thing, which was actually really, uh, really kind of big, was that I found absolutely no relationship between the amount of hours somebody played and any kind of mental health status. And the same was true with what kind of game they played and mental health status. So, you know, I had some individuals who played shooters and shooters did not predict whether somebody uh, experienced higher depression or anxiety or anger than somebody who didn't. And similarly, somebody who played 40 hours of a game a week was not, uh, that time was not predictive of them having worse mental health outcomes, which again, at the time was really counterintuitive to what was being uh, found in the research. But it, I mean, I guess selfishly, it did kind of confirm my personal anecdotal experience, but it it was there in the data too, which was Mm -hmm. great. And then the three findings that actually came out of the study itself, uh, which looked at the gaming habits of people over a span of 30 days, we measured pre and we measured post. And uh, we used an, a, a software called Raptor, which is kind of like a social media platform for gamers. I don't even know if it's still around, 
but the idea is that you provide your gamer tag to Raptor and it shares out like what you played and who you and how many hours you played and what kind of game it was. So it was great for my research because I didn't have to rely on self-report for people to tell me how many hours they were playing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to rely on people telling me the games they played because I could just go and collect that data. It also allowed me to kind of Jane Goodall it up by watching gamers in their quote unquote natural habitat because they're they're mm-hmm. in their homes, they're on their uh, computers or consoles with their controllers, with their friends and their games on their own time. Like it was um, very naturalistic and very observational in that way, as opposed to putting somebody in a lab and telling them to play for 20 minutes. Right. And what this data found was that one, individuals who played because they wanted to relax did not have any uh, mental health issues, but those who reported playing because they wanted to escape reality and that, you know, they just wanted to avoid the responsibilities and just push everything off. They tended to have, um, that tended to be predictive of some mental health issues. Nothing exaggerated, but it it did hit level of significance, even though the effect was rather small, but it was still there. Hmm. Uh, The next one was that individuals who initially scored higher on depression or anxiety measures, so like the depression inventory and the the STI, they were more likely to overestimate the number of hours they played and were really terrible um, at actually meeting that. So in other words, if you ask somebody who was struggling with depression how many hours a week they expected to play, they were really, really bad at, uh, at accurately estimating it, which is relevant and interesting because a lot of the literature up until that point was talking about how people with mental health issues play more time in video games and so therefore they must be connected. But what this shows is that people who are in that kind of mental state are just, are more likely to exaggerate the amount of time they think they're going to be playing even though they actually don't play that much. So Mm -hmm. that was, that was like a super uh, awesome and huge exciting thing for me. And then the, the last major Uh, kernel was that individuals who played video games to have fun with their friends is like a a social engagement no problems individuals whose only social engagement came from gaming you tended to see increases in in mental health issues and i know that was really long um (laughs) my dissertation it's it's only like 80 pages but that's i guess that's the short (laughs) abbreviated version of it also you did this research but Being a clinical psychologist, you also had counseling clients that you use video games as part of part of the treatment or therapy. You like to use video games to address self-esteem issues. Can you talk about why that is? Sure. So video games are this wonderful thing where the only way you can fail is if you quit. If you keep playing a video game and you keep at it and you keep practicing and you go to the forums and you look up strategy guides or walkthroughs or let's plays. These are things that you are designed to be something to accomplish. You know, a a lot of stuff in our daily lives, the fail state is like everywhere. It's so hard to feel like you've accomplished something. And just because you put effort into something doesn't mean that you're going to get a return, but that's not the way it is in video games. So video games are great for boosting self-esteem which is uh, how you feel about yourself. They're also great for boosting self-efficacy, which is a a similar construct wherein it's the belief in your ability to do the thing. So not just how you feel about yourself, but like, can I do this? Do I have the powers and the skills to to do that? 
And I think video games are, are great at that because that's what they're designed to do. They're designed to carry you from start to finish and building your skills uh, along the way and leveling up, I guess, is the, the cliche term for it. But I mean, if you think about, let's say, Mario, you know, you start the game only knowing how to you know, move left and right. And then you're moving left and right and, and jumping. And then you're left and right and jumping and run jumping and double jumping. And then you're flying with your little, you know, your raccoon cape. And it just, it just builds and builds and builds on those skills. And it, it develops that sense of self-efficacy and self-esteem. I saw this week, someone had written about Dark Souls that basically they had written this practically an essay about okay, you've heard about how Dark Souls is really scary and difficult, but here's why you should play it. And kind of the main part at the end that was bolded was, this is a game that teaches you that your character death is not failure. Your failure is when you give up because the whole game, the whole setup of the game is that it forces you to grow and to learn. And that's the main way that you get stronger is your knowledge and your commitment. And you know that wasn't a psychologist speaking, that was you know just someone's observation about the game. I found that was really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels between the kind of mentality you need to play video games, whether it's Tetris, whether it's Dark Souls, whether it's Candy Crush, um, and ways like therapeutic techniques for helping people uh, who are struggling with say, anxiety or, or depression. You know, a lot of times you just you need those wins and you need to remind yourself that even a small win is, is still a win. And I think video games do a good job of celebrating those small incremental wins, whereas life tends to kind of ignore them. Mm-hmm. And so being able to like draw on that and like, hey, you unlocked a chest, do, 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 you know, it's exciting. And, you know, maybe for someone who's struggling with depression, that that sound needs to go when they when they get out of bed in the morning, you know, because sometimes that is the win, that, that is win enough. Or, mm-hmm. you know, you, you face your fear from a very safe distance, or, you know, you, you confront what's going on even just a tiny bit, you know, getting that that reward and that feedback that, yeah, okay, you're advancing, you're going forward. It's hard and it's challenging, but you are still moving forward. So what are some other ways that video games have helped you with your counseling clients? So I, I refer to video games as like my instant rapport button. In, uh, in therapy and counseling, this idea of rapport is that you and the client, you... you you work well together. There's kind of a mutual respect. There's a mutual trust. And rapport is actually the number one predictor of client outcome. So mm-hmm. somebody who has good rapport with their therapist is much more likely to um, do well in therapy and move towards recovery than somebody who doesn't have good rapport, which again, makes a lot of sense. But time and time again, it's shown to be absolutely critical. So yeah, video games, especially with with younger clients, you know, teenagers and, and younger being able to not only talk about the games, but show that I'm genuinely interested and that I genuinely care and that these things are important to me too is, is super helpful. Uh, a lot of times with younger kids and even teenagers, they're often told by adults or other people who have power over their lives that video games are a waste of time, that they're stupid, you know, those, um, which is really hard because if, if, you know, your kid wanted to play soccer and you're like, soccer, stupid, you know, it, you wouldn't say that. But for some reason, the, the idea of playing a game, a video game in particular, it is, you're allowed to say that. So mm. one, letting clients know, hey, I get you. I, to- I might not have played the specific game you have, but 
I understand what it's like to get those epic wins and to want to play and want to achieve and feel like you're doing something important. Um, so that's one big part of it. Another part of it is actually using it in the therapeutic process itself. Uh, I had one uh, child I was working with who had some pretty severe ADHD issues and it's kind of masked how he was able to talk about what was going on with him emotionally. Cause he just, he couldn't sit still to talk with me. So what we ended up doing was taking out a, a bunch of just uh, watercolor paints and uh, he was really, really into Minecraft. So we broke out watercolor paints and we painted our own Minecraft characters and talked about the attributes that they had. So mine was super cheesy. It was, you know, I have a sword of resilience and a shield to block against automatic negative, automatic thoughts, like really lame. And his character had uh, fleet feet so he could run fast. He had a cape so he could disappear and he had gloves so that he could climb. And so I started talking about how, well, you know, it sounds like your character is hiding a lot or he, he feels like afraid because he needs to hide so he can run and he can climb and you know, he's got his invisibility cloak. And he was actually able to talk about what was going on with him through kind of the guise of his Minecraft character. And that was super, super helpful for him because it was inter entertaining. It was interesting. Mm -hmm. It was something he cared about. Um, and so he kept his brain moving and, and engaged, but he, we were still getting at like the emotional content. Um, so it just, I, I feel like I have a hundred stories like that where games just, they just helped me either connect and or move my client along in their therapeutic process. Yeah, that's, that's really incredible. You know, that it was interesting that, that you said that rapport was basically the number one predictor of outcomes. That's really fascinating to me because right now the culture for young kids is video games is just enormous. It's unbelievable how many kids play Minecraft, how many kids play all these other games. And, you know, it's on their shirts. It's what they talk about. My kids have never played Five Nights at Freddy's. And somehow every day at school, they come up with stories about Five Nights at Freddy's because it's part of what they talk about, what their friends do. To be someone who wants to connect with these people, you kind of have to understand video games. You have to know something about it. That, that seems like if I were trying to connect with kids, video games would be probably like top 10 what I would want to learn about. I think it seems like it's taken a long time for people to realize that. For It's taken a little while for teachers and psychologists and everything to kind of get on board with that idea that, hey, this is really important to them. It should be important to me. In psychology, we had this idea of cultural competency and that if you don't have the skills and ability to treat someone within their culture, then it's the ethical thing to do is to refer them to somebody else. So if somebody came to me and, and had, let's say, a Buddhist background and wanted to do therapy that was in line with Buddhist beliefs, I, I am not culturally competent in that area. And so I would refer them to somebody who was. And so I've been trying to help clinicians think about game culture in that same lens of, you know, this is something that's really important to people. And it's a, a big part of a, a lot of people's lives. So try to think about it as understanding this person's culture and what's important to them. And if you're not going to, then maybe you should give your client to somebody who will appreciate the, the importance that games play in the lives of children, adolescents, and, and adults. Now a word about this episode's sponsor, Discord. Discord allows you to join or create a server for free that you can use to connect via voice chat and text chat. Connect with people you know or people you share interests with, like favorite game genre or favorite streamer. 
It runs on your phone or in the background of your games, so you can always stay connected with gamers across platforms. Check out the Discord server for Plus 7 Intelligence listeners to discuss the ways that games are impacting the world. Just this past week, we've had some great conversations. We've talked about how we can create our own goals and quests within games. We talked about how stories and narrative in games work differently than in other media. And we've talked about how games fit into our lives as our responsibilities change as we get older. This server is turning out to be exactly the awesome, thoughtful community I had hoped it would be. Join in. To get started with Discord, go to discord.gg plus seven, or within the Discord mobile app or desktop app, simply type in plus seven as a server. I'll have a link on plus7intelligence.com as well. Plus seven intelligence is also brought to you by Nerdificent. Nerdificent is a new podcast from comedians Danny Fernandez and Ify Wadiwe. It's a weekly deep dive into nerdy subjects that you didn't know you needed to know about. Whether it's the mind-expanding frontiers of virtual reality or the surprisingly exciting modern renaissance of tabletop games, they'll take you from the origins into the surprising future of each subject. Which is a fancy way to say they go down a bottomless Google rabbit hole and tell you about the coolest stuff they find. They recently did an episode on video game violence, and I highly recommend it. They covered a lot of ground on the research and the politics of it. They've also had episodes about Nintendo, Twitch, esports, cosplay, and more. It's produced by the comedy division of How Stuff Works. Check out new episodes every Tuesday. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, I want to tell you about This Sounds Serious. It's a comedy podcast that tells a fictional murder story through the style of a true crime podcast. It involves twins, cults, and my homeland of Central Florida. Take a listen. This season on This Sounds Serious. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, It's my brother. I, uh, I think he's dead. It was quite possibly the most confusing case I've ever been a part of. Well, I guess I do have some splaining to do, because I did get my tips frosted. We were way ahead of the boy band thing. He joined a f***ing cult. You are going to meet face-to-face with a murderer. Plus, it's Florida. Everyone's a criminal there. It's like America's Australia. I mean, would you want to comb a mini horse? Uh, um... Now, can you imagine trying to do the weather without saying thunder? It looked like he was French kissing the waterbed. Twins. Identical twins. This Sounds Serious launches May 1st. Download it on CastBox or wherever you get your podcasts. There was a guy in my cult. He was like, uh, hey, everybody, I think we should kill ourselves. And we were all like, "Uh, yeah, okay, Todd, you go first. What inspired you to add on a second discipline on top of getting a doctorate in psychology What brought you into game design? The biggest gripe I had about existing research in the field of psychology and video games was that it was incredibly and painfully obvious that the people designing these studies had no idea about video games whatsoever. It it was like very apparent that they probably had never played anything other than solitaire. Um, You know, there was a study where they compared a first person shooter to a third person shooter in terms of some other, uh, some other variable and I'm like, no, no, they're, they're two very different experiences, first person versus third person. Those, those are different, 
you know, you're engaging different parts of your brain when you're playing that way. And, or, you know, well, we compared things mm-hmm. across uh, the age rating. So an E game, a T game and an M rated game, but one was a puzzle game. One was a shooter and one was a racing game. Like you can't, you can't compare a shooter to a racing game. Like you, you just mm-hmm. can't do this. And if you had played games or if you understood even the most basics about gameplay, you would get that. Um, and so I decided that, you know, I mean, part of it was opportunity. It, happened i stumbled upon it i was told to apply for this fellowship at american university for their masters in game design and i did and i definitely feel like my ability to critically analyze the literature around video games and and mental health and psychology in general is so much richer for it because not only do i understand games as somebody who is an enthusiast and as a player but i also understand them from a more designer and a developer Hmm. perspective like I, i know how to say sketch out a level so that somebody can have that feeling of accomplishment. You know, I know those, those little tips and tricks here and there to create a, a good experience and how to get attention. And so my, my psychology really helped inform that part of my design process, but being able to think like a game designer also helps me as a psychologist understanding why a game is designed that way. You know, why is that mechanic there? Why are they doing this? And so I, I just think I've, if I want to study these two areas, it's important to be cross-qualified in both. And I was very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can't remember if it was Patrick Markey or Chris Ferguson. I saw on Twitter that he was taking people to task for, you know, this recent wave of criticism about video games because of the backlash from Parkland and everything and posted about how in one study, Mario was treated as a violent video game, you know, which... It probably is from a philosophical perspective, maybe, but not if you really <laughs> want to look at violence, you know, that's probably not the place you're going to look. It, it does seem to be pretty important that people are taking some of these things very seriously and having people who are designing studies that are giving answers that people are looking to. It's very important that people understand that what's going on, it's not just flashes on a screen. And video games are, are so unique in that you know, if you were to talk about a movie or to talk about a book, people kind of can get the idea of what's going on. But when you talk about what you do in a video game, if people are unfamiliar, it sound, it can sound really terrible. Uh, the best example I have, I was playing Red Dead Redemption, which I love, love that game. And I had, I had a new horse and I was so excited and I was out riding the open range and there was a damsel and I figured, hey, I'm going to stop and rescue this damsel. And so I, I, I slowed up and she pulled me off my horse and threw me on the ground. And then she jumped on my horse and she started running away. I was like, oh no, honey, I worked hard for that horse. And so I literally like chased her down on foot, probably about half the continent. And when I finally caught up to her, I pulled her off the horse. I tied her up. I flung her over the back of my horse. I rode to the nearest train tracks. I laid her down on the train tracks, Steinle Whiplash style. And I sat there and I waited. I waited for that train to come. And it did. And it, you can know what happens. And I understand that somebody who's not familiar might hear that and go, oh my gosh, Kelly's a psychopath. Someone needs to like get her help. But for, I mean, you're laughing and I'm sure anybody else who's played Red Dead Redemption or games like it, um, or, you know, if you've played the the Sith role in Star Wars, like these are just things you that are, are 
fun, mm -hmm. not because we think murdering people is okay, but because it's really fun to explore the boundaries of the play space. You know, what will, what will the game let you do? What can you do? Uh, and that's part of the fun of games in general is, is pushing those boundaries and seeing, mm -hmm. you know, what you can do and experimenting with things that you would never do in real life <laughs> because of the consequences and the risks. Like I would never jack a, chain, a train in real life. I don't want to die, but it's really fun to do it as, as Marston in Red Dead Redemption. And so that's like just mm -hmm. an example of how from somebody who doesn't understand games and doesn't play and doesn't get to have that experience, the idea of me like, taking a woman throwing her on the train tracks I, I can totally see how they might think that yes this game made kelly violent when no kelly was just getting her horse back because it was really important to me <laughs> uh that story is kind of a interesting contrast between you know this digital horse has meaning to you in a certain sense because you worked for it and you know i haven't played the game but i assume it's difficult to get and companions in a game and things in a game that are valuable to you gameplay wise you get attached to but then on the other hand you've been playing for games for a while you know that a digital person is not a real person so you know an npc doesn't have value to you <laughs> yeah. it's it's not a violent act it's just an act that doesn't have anything deeply revealing other than hey this is something that i wanted to do and again, it's it's always important to, I mean, like our, our society as a whole is totally fine with violence. Right. Like we give kids water guns that are literally called water guns and, you know, they shoot water at, at people. And, you know, when kids are playing like that, nobody talks about how, oh, you're training them to be a sniper or, or something ridiculous like that. Play is this space where you can do pretty much anything you want that your imagination will let you do. And it's a safe space to do it because the consequences aren't real. And once you start having real world consequences, you're really not playing anymore. You're getting more into things like work and, and life. And so I, I think that's a, a large part that helped me understand more, um, at least from my, my game design background, was that games are a space that are made for exploration and experimentation. And you're supposed to shake down the trees and push the boundaries and that's kind of where the joy of a lot of games come from is, is finding something unexpected, doing something just to see what will happen because you can. And it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, throwing a girl on the train tracks or, you know, you're, you're solving a puzzle in Portal. You're, you're trying to figure out the way the, the world works, how the system works. And that, to me, is an incredibly powerful skill to develop in everybody like understanding how things work systems thinking how one thing affects something else and you know finding your boundaries those are like really important life skills for for everyone i can't resist talking about this because it sounds adorable uh can you talk about your project leb goal therapy dog <laughs> yes so for my master's thesis you know some programs you write a paper but in a game design program you make a game and so i made a game that was more or less uh, inspired by the Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney series, where the uh, the main character is Phoenix Wright, and he's an attorney, as I'm, as I'm sure is not a shock. And I was thinking, I would love for this game to be about a psychologist, because you do so much of the same work. There's deductive reasoning, you collect evidence, like there, there's all these things, and it, it just seemed to make sense. And so what I ended up doing was making a game called Ellie Beagle Therapy Dog. 
based off of the Phoenix Wright series. So it is a, like an interactive graphic novel type feel. And you have puppy clients who have puppy problems. Uh, you yourself play as Ellie, who is a beagle, and she's a therapy dog. And her uh, her character is 100% my real life dog, whose name is Ellie, who is a beagle, who is, li- is a licensed therapy dog. And so you see your puppy uh, clients with their puppy problems. Uh, whether it's barking at the mailman or getting sent to the pound, you know, the different things that, that go on in the lives of dogs. And you you talk with them and you dig through their memories and kind of sniff out what's going on. And then you can kind of, like in Phoenix Wright, you present evidence that supports whatever your therapeutic leanings are. So you help your clients gain insight by presenting evidence. And yeah, so I, uh, I I did that for my master's project. I got to present it at Games for Change last year. It is something that I wish I had more time to work on, uh, but sadly I I, I don't. But I, I wish I did. And yeah, I developed it in in Unity, and I love that game so much. <laughs> it's one of those where I was like, I want this game to exist, so I'm just going to make it myself. So it sounds like in in your current work with iThrive Games. You actually do bring together your psychology background and your game design background in one. So can you talk about what you do there? Sure. Uh, So my my official title is Manager of Mental Health Research and Design. My tasks are just as diverse. Uh, So on... One of the things that I that is in my job description is uh, I, I know it's a real it's rough, but uh, I play video games. So uh, last night I actually just finished playing Night in the Woods uh, because mm-hmm. I'd heard that that has some mental health themes in it. And I've you know I played Edith Finch for work. I played This War of Mine for work. So pretty much anything that I can make the argument to my boss that it has mental health themes or like social emotional learning themes Mm -hmm. that I should be able to play so I can keep our team updated on what's out there. And uh, when we do our design uh, decisions, I can speak from a place of, okay, well, this game said it dealt with depression and this is how it represented depression and it did it well or it did it not well. And so it just informs my research and design strategy. I also write a ton. Like I, I write everything from blog posts, which I, I have. I wrote one about how Sea of Thieves is all about cooperation, and mm. it's really, really great. And that's up on iFi right now. I've Isn't also it a pirate recently. game. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a pirate game about cooperation. <laughs> it totally is. Like the teamwork required for that game is intense, and I love it. So for that, I've written research papers. I've written white papers. Uh, I've presented at conferences talking about mental health, games, uh, game design in general. I actually had a, a really fun talk on the ethics of designing for empathy in VR spaces. So I help inform mm. that part of the strategy too. And then just I lend my my game design brain to them while we're developing pretty much anything. So we have a series of kind of like game jams. And we also have something called Game Design Studio, which is where we teach teens Basically, we use game design as like the lure to bring, uh, that sounds so creepy, to bring in teens. <laughs> um, but we, we use that as the hook. And then through game design, we teach important skills like cooperation and collaboration and communication and, you know, how do, how do you work together and how do you problem solve together and all those skills that are critical to the game design process. And we've kind of all folded into one. So finding ways to make that more playful, more game-like. For a little while now, there's been games coming out that their purpose is mental health driven, whether it's apps or games, they're 
designed with some intent to address mental health. I've seen games about depression, PTSD. What do you think about these games that are coming out? In general, kind of an overview, I kind of see them in two different groups. You have games that are designed in terms of treatment. Like there's a game called Sparks, which is supposed to be an RPG style game for teens that walks them through um, like traditional cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so it's 100 um, percent like empirically based and, and treatment focused. And then you have uh, a larger swath of games where mental health is the theme or the content uh, that's being discussed. So you see that in Night in the Woods, you see that in Depression Quest, you see that in Actual Sunlight, you see that in Cinema, uh, or rather Hellblade, Cinema's Sacrifice, Town of Light. There are all these different games um, to varying degrees of, of sophistication and polish that are dealing with mental health as, as a topic, as a theme, as something to be aware of. And where I kind of hope to see it go, like, I, I think those are super important. I think both of those categories are critical and important. And I want to see more games like that. I want to see very different types of mental illness represented and portrayed, because I think that will go a long way, uh, if it's done well, to a long way to reducing stigma and like normalizing the process of having a mental illness, especially considering, uh, I think the stats are like 50% of the US population will either experience a mental illness in their lifetime or have like a very close person in their life who will. So it's, it's not obscure. It's, it's very common. And so I, I want games to kind of reflect the commonness of it. Like I would love mm -hmm. to see games start including these types of neuroatypical presentations in just like a very normal way. Uh, one of the best examples I can think of is Symmetra from Overwatch. She mm -hmm. Uh, it, it was theoried that she was on the autism spectrum, and I, I'm pretty sure that the the devs have actually confirmed that. And so it kind of shapes who she is and and her abilities and her skills. But she still is 100% useful to the team. You know, she's a good player. She's a good teammate. She's not someone who needs to be rescued. She's not somebody who needs to be pitied. It's she's a person who also happens to have you know, a, a mental health issue as opposed to the person with the mental health issue, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Seeing some different variation, a little bit more sophistication and definitely more accuracy is definitely something valuable in games. I'm really interested to see how some of these games come along that are intended to be a treatment, you know, because some of the things about video games that sometimes terrify people, you know, how how much people get invested in them, how long they play them, you know, that could be turned for good that if someone can get that involved in a a treatment game, you know, maybe that will be that'll be something that's really effective. Maybe it'll be something new that we haven't seen before. I'm really interested to see how how those develop in the future. Yeah, I think I think the struggle for that is that game designers and psychologists tend not to run in the same circles. So I've seen some really great games that are trying to do good mental health work, but had no consultation or subject matter expertise in the development of their game. And so there's no empirical basis for it. On the other hand, you have psychologists who have all the empiricism in the world and can design a, 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 an intervention that works, but they're not game designers. And so the mm -hmm. game, if they even call it that, sucks and it's terrible. Um, and so there, there needs to be some kind of middle ground between the two where, you know, psychologists and game designers, we come together and we share, you know, 
psychologists can learn so much from game designers in terms of how do you engage people and game designers can learn so much from psychologists in terms of how can we help people live their their best lives and how can we you know manifest and represent the the complexity and diversity of those uh, individuals who have uh, you know who are struggling with a mental illness or who are in recovery or who are supporting somebody else who is struggling with a mental illness yeah that's really interesting you know you say they don't run in the same circles every game design book that i've picked up there's probably at least one chapter that's very heavily sourced for psychology so it's really interesting to me that from your perspective they don't intermingle I mean, I guess it makes sense, but it's it's also uh, kind of interesting that game design game designers will kind of cherry pick, you know, what they want from psychology. I mean, everybody does. <laughs> it's just something with the the field. But from what I've seen from books like that, they're talking like very basic level. Like this is what a reinforcement schedule looks like, and this is shaping behavior, and this mm-hmm. is punishment versus reinforcement, and like just super like year one freshman intro psych kind of content, which is great. Like, I'm glad that they're including that because that is helpful, but it does not get near, anywhere near the kind of expertise that you could get from somebody who's actually worked with clients, you know, from somebody who's actually Mm -hmm. studied this and, and knows it inside and out. And the same way that, yeah, you could go onto Unity and look up, how do I make a, a side scrolling 2D platformer? doesn't mean it's going to be good. <laughs> I mean, the, the information's out there and you can pull it in for your treatment, but it doesn't mean that you're going to apply it right or that it's going to be good. So I, I think it's great whenever people try, but it's a lot better if, if we can actually get the people in the room together, working together, collaborating, because that's when you have the magic happen. I'm curious about recently with loot box craze and everything, there's been a lot of talk about about all kinds of angles to approach it from. And one of the refrains that comes up a lot is, what about the responsibility of a game designer to people who may have mental health issues? And what is their responsibility to create games that could kind of hook onto those symptoms and form a negative, a negative relationship between that person and a game and cause problems or make problems worse? I'm curious what your thoughts are on on the topic of the game designer's responsibility towards people with mental health. One, this idea that video games are addictive always like makes me really mad because addiction in the clinical sense as as I know it, um no, like that that's not how addiction works, but it's the term that people tend to use the same way they say, "Oh, I'm so OCD" because they're adjusting something on their on their TV screen or whatever, like the use of clinical terms to describe normal use, I think is problematic. Mm-hmm. So just like getting that out of the way first, uh, there's also the consideration that people who do exhibit problems with gaming, you know, so they're, they're playing video games to the extent where maybe they're no longer showering or their grades are dropping or they're not coming into work. 99% of those cases, the game is a symptom, not the problem. So people are going into the game to get some kind of human need met. It could be for connection. It could be for, you know, to feel autonomous or to feel competent or to feel related to other people. But there's something in the game they're getting that they're not getting from the real world. So the games aren't the problem. They're just kind of the coping mechanism. So putting that aside and like the tiny, tiny little one, possibly one or 0.01% of people who could quote unquote, 
get addicted, I'll even use the term, um, to a video game. The responsibility to them, I think, is to always ensure that players have autonomy and that there is transparency and there's always a way to say no. Um, I think that's important in that like you can't, you shouldn't force people to use loose crates and nobody does. I mean, that's the thing. Nobody is forced to buy a loot crate. Nobody is forced to, you know, buy any kind of DLC or, or anything that has random chance in it. I think game designers should be mindful of the mechanics that they are impl- that they are using. But at the same time, I think that we as consumers also need to be very aware that the whole point of a game or any kind of commercial anything, like not just games, but movies and books and TV and film, is to get you engaged. And with games, they, they want you to keep playing their game because that's how they make money. So I think it's not the responsibility on one to the to the exclusion of another i think it's something that it's good that it's being talked about like i'm i'm glad to see people talking about loot crates and posing in really interesting questions around the ethics and legality of such a system uh like that was in uh, was it destiny 2 who had the no no that wasn't the one that had everybody mad um a star wars battlefront 2 was the probably the one you're thinking of yeah star wars battlefront 2 like the fact that you would have to play for i think someone said like 70 years in order to actually unlock everything that you could just buy in 10 minutes via loot crates so i'm not sure how much responsibility game devs have just because if the fans don't like it they're going to let you know and they're going to let you know on your forums they're going to let you know on social media and they're going to let you know at the bottom line like financially Mm -hmm. speaking Battlefront backpedaled pretty darn quick. So I, I think there is just, there's a balance that needs to be struck um, between game, game designers and developers as a profit-seeking company and consumers who are taking in their product. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. I feel like it's an important thought project, but mm-hmm. not necessarily something to be writing legislation about or or to be in a, a panic about. Many thanks to Kelly for speaking with me. She has a breadth of knowledge and experience that is just fantastic. I was really only able to scratch the surface here. If you want to follow her work or get in contact, you can find her on Twitter. That's at Kelly N Dunlap. That's Kelly with an I. And her website is dunlapsid.com. And she also hosts a couple podcasts where she talks about this stuff all the time. Headshots and Psych Tech. She hosts them along with Josue Cardona, who was also a guest on this very show way back in episode three. If you liked this episode, particularly about applying video games to counseling, you will definitely like that one. And all of these things are linked in the show notes. I ran across something this week that fits in perfectly with this series on games and mental health. Someone posted on Reddit an image of Link standing in front of Hyrule Castle in Breath of the Wild, which is the place of the final showdown with Calamity Ganon. Nothing too incredible on its own, but the title really gives interesting context. It reads, I put 170 hours into Breath of the Wild to keep my mind active while severely depressed. I said I wouldn't fight Ganon until I was better. I'm now ready. 
And in the comments, the poster talks about how they had sought out mental health treatment, but their first therapist didn't really give them anything helpful, just told them to cheer up and sent them to a website. And then another doctor essentially just dropped the ball with setting up a plan for cognitive behavioral therapy. And after that, this person decided that they would try to beat it alone, and playing Zelda was a part of that. And it was encouraging to hear that a game did help this person. But also, after hearing this story, gamers started contributing their own in the comments below. And here are some of the things I just wanted to share, kind of a list of what they said. I feel like games have been an escape for me during tough times. It's like living in a different world. You forget the problems, you forget the sadness, you are so entrenched in the story that it feels like you are living it. It's pretty therapeutic to me. I suffer from depression too. Remember that while Zelda has wisdom and Ganon has power, you were blessed with courage. Courage to defy all the odds. Courage to push back the darkness that can so easily swallow us. Courage to keep going no matter what. I'm proud of you, hero. Go finish the fight. Playing this game really helped me with the grief of losing my mom. I'm glad it helped you too. I can relate. I picked up Breath of the Wild to distract me while my divorce is being finalized. I could go in and beat Ganon today, but I keep choosing to explore the world instead. Shooters and fighting and racing games may have adrenaline-filled action to distract you. Strategy and sports games may fill your brain with tactics instead of problems, but only RPGs can make you really feel like you're in a better place with your problems far away in a distant reality. That one is super interesting based on the discussion that we had last episode about role-playing games and why they're, they're so therapeutic. So that was really cool to see someone express that and, and give kind of a reasoning to it, even if it's not quite as scientific as our discussion last week. And all of this is not to discourage seeking out professional help. Even the person who originally posted the picture in the story acknowledged that he was not magically cured, just that this helped him through a rough time when other avenues weren't working out. If you're interested in reading more, the thread goes into some really interesting discussions of the ups and downs and the pluses and negatives of using games as kind of a self-treatment for mental health. There will be a link to the thread in the show notes. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. Join me next week as I talk with Cam Adair, the founder of Game Quitters, about gaming addiction and what to do about it. Subscribe so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven. Episode provided by the ever elusive and mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder.